let there be light. <laughs> There's way too much power up here in the pulpit. <clears throat> Glad you're here with us if you're visiting with us. Um, that wasn't me, it was the people back in the stage. They turned the lights on, just so you know. Um, glad you're here. What a beautiful day. Can you believe it? School's starting. Football is about ready to kick off. Lots of uh, interesting things happening. And, uh, but this morning, right now, we are going to open up the scriptures. That's what we do here at Fellowship Bible Church. Last year, um, it was uh, Christmas Day, December 25th. The $10 billion James Webb telescope was launched into space. This thing is massive. Biggest telescope out there in space. Um, its infrared um, technology is uh, by far and away uh, more advanced than anything we've put out there before. The, it, the Hubble telescope couldn't even come close to this in terms of the detail, the sensitivity of looking into the far reaches of, uh, of space. And it ought to be good for $10 billion, right? Well, last month, July, um, I think it was the 12th, it began its, uh, its deep space observation. And last week, uh, French physicist uh, Etienne Klein uh, posted on, uh, he tweeted on his tweeting account, some 91,000 uh, uh, followers, uh, a remarkable, remarkable picture of Proxima Centauri. It is the um, closest star to the sun, 4.2 uh, light years away from the sun. And true to its um, billing, the James Webb Telescope, he said, uh, brought such clarity never before seen on this Proxima Centauri star. He tweeted, a new world is unveiled every day. And of course, it uh, took uh, the science people by storm. It was that picture was retweeted thousands of times uh, this last week until they found out it was nothing more than a piece of chorizo sausage. <laughs> and the little Frenchman had some fun with uh, his Twitter followers. Uh, now, he had to apologize a couple of days ago for doing that, but um, <laughs> the point is, Things aren't always as they seem. Phaedrus, the uh, Roman writer at the time of Christ, he actually said it this way. Things are not always as they seem. The first appearance deceives many. The intelligence of a few perceives what has been carefully hidden. Well, that was certainly the case. Is it Proxima Centauri or is it... Um, a piece of chorizo sausage on a pizza. Things aren't always as they seem. How we perceive things might not necessarily be true. And when that comes to life, how we perceive life and what, uh, what's important to life or how life works, um, is it accurate or is it not? There's this age-old struggle between perception and reality. Um, life can be an optical illusion at times. And of course, our perception of things is shaped by all sorts of things. It's shaped by our, our upbringing, how we were raised, the culture in which we were raised. It's shaped by maybe a, a traumatic event in our life. Um, our perception of how life works can be 
unfortunately, shaped by the culture in which we live because we're being bombarded uh, by a constant barrage of, of worldly thinking. It's hard not to have that slip into uh, our, our mindsets, our databanks, and shape how we think, how we view life. And this is crucial because how we perceive things to be true, whether they are or not, really impacts our, our perception and perspective of life that then impacts how we're going to live that life out. It's like the Appalachian shoe salesman who went down and called his home office and says, get me out of here. They don't wear shoes down here. And they sent the other guy down there following him, and he called up the home office and said, hey, send a truckload of shoes. They don't wear shoes down here. How we perceive things to be affects our perspective, our outlook on life, and determines our actions. The Israelites saw a big giant. They said, he's too big to kill. And a little shepherd boy saw a big Goliath, and he said, he's too big to miss. How we perceive things impacts our our perception of, of uh, our perspective of, of the outlook of life, and it orders how we live our life. Um, Tim Sanford, in his uh, series last month, explained it this way: My thinking determines my attitude, which then determines my actions. Or, as Solomon put it, "What a man thinks in his heart, so is he." What a man thinks to be true, so is he. The most important thing about us right now, folks, is what we perceive to be true. Because that determines how we perceive life, what our outlook of life is, which then alters the course of our actions. What is true? What are we thinking to be true? Because as a person thinks, so is he. It results in activities. Well, this morning, I want you to take your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. It's the final chapter in Dr. Luke's gospel account, Luke chapter 24. And I think Luke wants to teach us something about truth regarding perception versus reality. How we perceive things to be true might not necessarily be true, and that's very important because it'll affect our perspective of life and how we order our life. Now, Luke wrote two volumes, the Gospel of Luke, and in a few weeks we're going to be starting uh, his second volume that he wrote, which is the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, this is Luke chapter 24. It's the last chapter of his Gospel account, which takes place um, after Jesus was raised from the dead. So he's been raised from the dead, and then there in Luke 24 here, two appearances of this resurrected Jesus and the impact of that encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Now, the first uh, encounter was with that, that familiar story of the two men walking on the road to Emmaus. So let's pick the story up in verse 13. And Luke writes in chapter 24, verse 13, and behold, two of them, two disciples, were going that very day to a village named Emmaus. And these weren't part of the 11 disciples. These were other followers of Jesus. They were going to Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And I don't know how fast you walk. Seven miles um, 
probably that's as fast as I would walk. That might be, what, three hours? I don't know. But a, a couple hours, maybe, depending on how quickly they're walking. So they're, they're heading to Emmaus, out of Jerusalem, and it says in verse 15, or verse 14, and they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. They were talking about the events of, uh, that had just transpired, the death of Jesus. The, the trumped-up charges that had come against him, the, the, the Roman crucifixion, the, the, the loss of a dream, and it was this, this energized talk. The, the, the words, our translation says they were talking with each other, but the word really conveys a, almost a debating. They're, they're talking, uh, wrestling with what had tr- transpired. And verse 15 says, while they were talking and discussing Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. So they don't know who it is, but this stranger comes on the road to Emmaus um, with these travelers. And Jesus said in verse 17, so what, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you are walking? And my text says, and they stood still looking sad. Um, they were shocked. I mean, Jesus comes, joins this two little two guys heading to Emmaus. So, so, so what, 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 are, what is this you're talking about? And they are shocked. It's like he, they said, uh, one of them, Cleopas, uh, Cleopas, in verse 18, answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened in these days? I mean, it was so shocking, they stopped dead in their tracks. And with sadness of the heart, it's like, you've got to be kidding me. Are you that clueless? Like, what planet did you drop from? Didn't you know what was going on? Now, I, I, this is one of my favorite passages because I think there, it, there's an underlying sense of humor here because um, the, the only one who wasn't clueless was Jesus. <laughs> and don't you know what's going on? Uh, but they didn't know who he was. And verse 19, he said to them, what things? And again, I think you've got to use your sanctified imagination, but I have to believe that Jesus had a twinkle in his eye. (laughs) What things? And they said to him, well, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. And by the way, they had that right. Yeah, the Romans pounded the nails into his hands and feet and put him on that cross, but these guys had it right. It was the religious leaders of the day who did it. They did the, the dastardly deed of, uh, of killing Jesus. And they said in verse 21, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things have also happened. Now, you've got to get a sense of the despair these guys are going through. They're leaving Jerusalem. I mean, the, the show's over. The curtains drop. And their leader, that they thought was going to be the Savior of Israel, their hopeful Messiah, they probably saw it with their own eyes, hanging on the cross and breathing his last, The guy is dead. The show is over. Let's go home and get out of here. In fact, it's been three days. Nothing's happening. We got it. It's done. We were hoping something differently. And they're grief-stricken. 
as, as they head home to, to, to nothing. Dashed dreams and hopes. And then they said in verse 22, but also you know, some, some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb earlier in the morning and did not find his body. And they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said it was, that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was exactly as the women had said, but they, they didn't find him. And so, I mean, again, the show's over. Stole his body or something, whatever happened. But you see, if they had believed the testimony of Jesus earlier that said, I'm going to die and three days later rise again, you think they'd be walking back to Emmaus? Are you kidding me? They'd be sticking right there in Jerusalem waiting for it to happen. But in their mind, all hope is gone. And these, these, these women who are saying that he's raised from the dead, ah, they and they're heading home. And then verse 25, Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Messiah, the Christ, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? What is Jesus doing? Beginning, it says in verse 27, with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. He's correcting their perception of their reality. He's changing how they think about life, about the events that have just transpired. He's bringing, bringing in correct information from the scriptures. From Moses and the prophets, he begins explaining all these things concerning himself in the scriptures. Now, we don't know for sure what those things were. We, we, the text doesn't tell us. Um, Jesus might have gone to Genesis, the first book, chapter 3, probably, the, that great little kind of first prophetic word where God tells them the curse of Satan, you're going to be crushed by the seed of the woman. He's going to come and he's going to crush your head, though you will, you're going to nip him in the heel. It was a, a prophetic scripture of the coming of God's Messiah. Maybe Jesus took him to that story of Abraham and Isaac going up to Mount Moriah, where Abraham is going to sacrifice his son in obedience to what God told him to do. Go sacrifice your son on Mount Moriah. And as he raises the, the knife to plunge it into his son, his only son, the son whom you love, God stays his hand and provides the sacrificial ram instead. Maybe he, he took him to um, the story of the ark of, uh, of Noah, how God uh, provided a, a, a way of escape, and he sealed the ark, and his uh, righteous folks were, were saved. Maybe he took him to Isaiah 53, of the suffering servant. Uh, many other prophetic scriptures, maybe to the Psalms, uh, Psalm 22 or Psalm 110, Messianic Psalms, we don't know, but it says beginning with Moses and the prophets, he began to explain the scriptures, those things that have to do with himself. And it says in verse 28 that as they approached the village where they were going, he acted as though he were going on farther. 
And they urged him, verse 29, and said, stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in and stayed with them, and I'm sure they were thrilled, because my guess is that they had never heard anything like this before. The Bible lessons they were getting on that two-hour walk or three-hour walk or whatever it was, they had never, never heard before. And they must have been enthralled as this stranger on the road to Emmaus starts talking to them about the, the Old Testament and the Messiah. Well, then verse 30. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. <clears throat> now that's significant because here the guest becomes the host. He takes the bread and he breaks it, he blesses, and he gives it to them. And whether these two guys were uh, part of that upper room setting a few days before when Jesus had his disciples in that last Passover meal, maybe they had helped serve, they maybe helped provided things, we don't know. But when they saw Jesus take the bread and bless it and break it and give it to them, verse 31 says, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. <laughs> what a scene. They realized at that moment, wait a minute, that, that was Jesus. And they said in verse 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us? while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. And they make a 180 degree turn and they got up that very hour, it says in verse 33, returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them. So there's this kind of hidden bunker where the disciples are holding out because uh, they've been scattered and now they're trying to figure out what next are we going to do our, our lord and savior our, our jesus is is dead and there's others there in the room and those others and i think that's how we have to understand verse 34 those others were saying well but but the lord the lord has really risen and simon he's appeared to you he's appeared to simon and simon's sitting there and th these guys are dazed they don't know what's going on and that's when the two people from emmaus bust into the room and it says, while these other people were saying, yeah, yeah but I think the stories are getting out there that he, he's risen, they bust in the room and they say, well, we saw him. He really is alive. He taught us the scriptures. We ate with him. And now we have this scene, this second scene that begins with the teaching we'll see in just a moment of Jesus. Verse 36. Verse 35 says, they begin to relate the experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread and while they were telling these things he himself jesus stood in their midst and said to them peace be still and they rose up with such joy and excitement and no verse 37 says and they were startled and frightened as though they had just seen a spirit they're still not getting it it seems like their perception of reality is still skewed there there's some major correction that's got to happen and it begins right now, verse 38. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, see my feet, it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. What is Jesus doing again? He's changing their understanding of, of, 
of reality. He's correcting that perceived reality that was a false reality that had led to a perspective of doom and gloom that caused their actions to leave Jerusalem and head home and just be, it's over. Touch me, see me. And then he said in verse 40, or he showed him his hands and feet, and then while they still cannot believe, now their, their joy and amazement is starting to take over, and he said to them, have you anything here to eat? In verse 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. I mean, he's, he's showing them, look, it's me, as he chomps down on the fish and swallows it. This is me. It is real. He's changing their perception of reality. But what really gets them, verse 44, and he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that are written about me in the law and the prophet of Moses and the, and the prophets and of the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Where does Jesus go? He goes to the scriptures. And he said to them in verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Another tremendous Bible lesson from the great Bible teacher, Jesus himself. And he unfolds the scriptures. Now, he was standing there. Here, touch me. See these hand the prints, nail prints? See my feet? Eat the fish. Watch me do it, guys. But where does he take them, ultimately? To the scriptures. He takes them to the scriptures, and he opens their hearts and their minds to understand the truth of God's word. And after this Bible lesson, what's the impact into the lives of these disciples. Look at verse 49. He says, Behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. That's the Holy Spirit. We'll get into that when we study the book of Acts. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he led them, verse 50, out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them. He was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy, were continually in the temple praising God. You see, their perception of reality had gotten violently changed and altered by the truth of Jesus and his Bible lessons from the scriptures. It changed their whole outlook, their perspective of life, so much so that it impacted how they lived. And instead of huddled down in fear and fright in some bunker hiding from uh, the Roman authorities, where are they heading? To the temple, praising God. Instead of filled with sadness and hopelessness and despair, they're rejoicing and praising God. They're living it out. And we'll see as we study the book of Acts, the profound impact and the world-changing impact when the disciples' perception of reality got aligned to true, truth and how their perspective then totally changed and it impacted their life. Um, oftentimes a Bible writer, when he wants to emphasize something, will repeat 
something, whether it's a word or a phrase. When you do Bible study, you look for those repetitive phrases or words, and that shows emphasis. Well, Luke is trying to emphasize something here in this final chapter of his gospel account as he begins to open up volume two in the book of Acts. On those two occasions, we can't miss it, on those two occasions, he is focusing on the scriptures. Verse 27 again, 24 through 27. You foolish men, verse 25, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And then what we just read, starting with Moses and uh, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, it had to be fulfilled, and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Luke is, on these two occasions, is explaining that the disciples' perception of reality was skewed. And the only thing to bring it back into what was real was the scriptures. That's where Jesus went. He went to the scriptures. And when their perception of reality was aligned with truth, their perspective of life changed. And so did their whole demeanor, their whole walk of life. I think there's some important principles that are pertinent for us today. Let me share with you real quickly three of them. Trying to make sense out of life apart from God's word is a, it's a fruitless exercise. It's an exercise in utter futility. See, we've been created in the image of God. We have been created in his image. He has created this whole universe. He has ordered it in such a way that it is to run in a certain way under his sovereign oversight and care. But, but sin entered the world and mucked it all up. And so we're lost. We're open to great deception. The God of this world, the great liar from the beginning, the father of lies, can certainly lead us astray. The world, the flesh, and the devil can, can cause that perception of reality to be off course from what God has ordered it to be. Paul writes, and we won't turn there, but when he was writing to the church of Corinth in his, <clears throat> the second letter, sec well, probably his third letter, but 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he makes a very important statement when he says to the church, to the believing community in Corinth, I'm, I'm concerned for you, I fear for you, he says, lest like Eve was deceived by Satan, your minds might be led astray from the simplicity and devotion to Christ. Paul's writing to believers. How many times in the, throughout the New Testament are we exhorted, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren? <laughs> we can be so easily moved off uh, what, what is true. We, we can so easily have our perception of reality not line up with scriptures. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 2, not to be conformed to the world's way of thinking, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We desperately need that. Because if we try to order our life based on how we feel at the moment or, or uh, you know, the world's perspective or maybe even the mom and dad's perspective or how I was raised or, or just misconceptions about things. 
we can end up a dead-end street going nowhere. Because it's only as our life is in tune with the truth of God's Word do we find life and life in abundance. Do we lead that life that we've been created to experience? Oh, it's so important to order our life according to the Scriptures. Here's a second principle. It's what Jesus said in John 8, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And here was Cleopas and his other traveling companion and <clears throat> the other disciples and the people in the, that hidden bunker in Jerusalem uh, cowering in fear and concerned about what the future is now going to hold and wondering how life is going to make sense anymore. Gripped, shackled by hopelessness and despair and fear. And then Jesus comes and he, he reorients their thinking to truth. He gives them truth of the scriptures, opening up with Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and he, he helped them to, to get their perception of reality in line with truth. And folks, they were set free, as we'll see from the book of Acts. They're now in the temple, uh, verse 52 and 53, continually praising God and rejoicing their whole Perspective and outlook of life has been changed, and it's altered their entire life. Knowing truth, Jesus says, is going to set you free. But Jesus also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so here's a third principle. Ultimately, we value God's word because it points us to the truth. It points us to Jesus himself. The bottom line is, it's not what we know that really matters, it's who we know. And did you catch that in uh, verse 27 of 24? When the, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. The last uh, letter that the great apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, he said, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus was uh, arguing with the religious leaders of the day, he chastised them and says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but these testify it's me. When we get into God's word, it's not just a, a, a mental exercise, it's just not some uh, educational exercise to dot the I's correctly and cross the T's correctly. It's coming to know a person, because it's pointing to him. We're, we have the privilege of entering into a, a, a real, vital, personal relationship with the living God who helps us shape our thinking to his truth. As we commune with him and fellowship with him, the old ways of thinking disappear, and the, his thinking begins to change our whole outlook and perception of reality. That's why the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, when he says, I count all things as loss. Everything. Put, put all my achievements, put everything I've gained, all my wealth, all my prestige, put whatever I've gained, I count everything as loss, he says, in view of, listen to this, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Here at Fellowship Bible Church, we have these core values that we are talking about 
over these next few weeks. Last week, it was the core value of loving God. And today, it's lit up the, the core value of truth. It's, it's orienting our life around truth, the scriptures, the word of God, um, helping us change our perception of what we think is reality desperately needing a different perspective on life so that we can live our lives accordingly according to god's plan now, there's so many things folks that are just grabbing our attention these days good night the, the bombardment of the crazy stuff the sinful stuff the scary things if we let it happen to us of what's going on in this world what might be going on in your family i've had a little granddaughter in the hospital for three days i've had Another whole family down in Charlottesville sick with COVID for the last four or five days. And we've got people who are in desperate situations of health and financial things. And boy, we can just be gripped with despair or hopelessness or fear. And I'm here today to tell you, and I'll guarantee you, if we're gripped with fear, we have a skewed perspective of reality. Now, those are emotions, and God gives us those to us, but those emotions are like green, or red lights on a dashboard of a car. They pop up and they warn us, something under the hood is not quite right. And every time, I'll guarantee you, you pop the hood of our heart, of our mind, and we see that we are thinking something that is re we think is reality that is not. And that reality that we think is true has to line up with scriptures. And so... For 42 years here at Fellowship Bible Church, the existence of this church, we are dedicated to teach the scriptures, whether it's in our women's Bible studies, our men's Bible studies, our children's ministry, youth ministry, our counseling ministry. It's all rooted and grounded in the, in the Word of God. That's, that's our passion. It's our core value is to, if we're going to grow as disciples, we have to be oriented around the truth of God's Word. Folks, there is... The, we're in a mess these days because sadly even in the evangelical church it seems like we're getting away from the systematic teaching of the word of god god help us see things are not always as they seem and we have to align our thinking properly according to the word of god and as we do as we understand this written word it points us to the living word. And all of a sudden, the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And all of a sudden, life starts getting into perspective. Oh, yeah, we can be gripped with fear as we listen to the news and read what's going on and all that stuff, but folks, did you read the last chapter? We win. <laughs> we win. Now, we might die winning, but we win. And nothing can, nothing. Jesus said in Matthew 10, don't fear those who can kill the body, but not the soul. Kill him who can kill both body and soul in heaven. In other words, let's orient our life around the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the wonderful thing is, he loves us. He loves us. One of our members here, Bo Spires, um, who uh, coordinates our adult education, our biblical training center, He's a pharmacist at the hospital. Bo um, 
Bogue grew up in his early years in some situations that certainly put his thinking um, askewed from the truth of Scripture. And then something wonderful happened. But uh, instead of me telling you, watch the screen. Let's let Bo tell us. I became a believer in 1995 between my ninth and 10th grade years. But my story starts before that. Uh, my story is a story of, of pain and um, it's a story of seeking approval from the wrong places. You see, my mom and dad got divorced when I was very young and I lived with my mom for a short time and then she packed my bags up, put them on the front doorsteps of my dad's front door and uh, rode off into the sunset with her new boyfriend on her motorcycle. And not long after that, um, they got married, had three kids, and I always had the question of why. Um, why wasn't I good enough for her to stick around? Um, what was wrong with me uh, in, in this whole process? And so that brought pain and hurt, but it also brought me seeking approval from man and the wrong places. So that is what drove me. That was my why for the things that I did. Um, why I strove so hard to make good grades so I could be accepted by teachers. Why I worked so hard in sports so I could achieve goals. But that was until about my ninth grade year, eight ninth grade year, um, I met a man, a young guy at this time named John Anderson. Um, and John was a guy that was horrible at sports. Um, I love sports, love baseball, love football. And I met John um, and this guy would strike out a lot. He would not start on the football team or the baseball team. In fact, he didn't start a single game until his senior year. Um, and I tell you all this because for me, that would have drove me crazy. The reason I did stuff was acceptance by mankind. So I had to start. I had to have them think I was good at what I was doing. But John, this guy didn't start, struck out a lot, didn't, I mean, but he smiled. He was always cheering his teammates on. He was always the first to practice the last to leave. He would clean up. When I would strike out, he would come over and say, Bo, you'll get him next time. Don't worry about it while I was throwing the helmet down. Um, and I watched this and it, it got to me because it didn't, didn't matter the circumstances. John always had a peace about him. So again, it was about that between my ninth and 10th grade year after watching John for about a year and a half, I went up and asked him his why. And John introduced me to Christ. And uh, he told me that the peace he has comes from the relationship he has with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, I could have that relationship too. And so that was my first encounter with Christ. And uh, 
and it was in a person that was living it out. And so I believed in Christ for eternal life at that point, and uh, that was the beginning of my, my Christian walk and my spiritual journey. Now, John also introduced me to Albany Bible Church that was where I was discipled. Um, now, my first impressions of the scripture, uh, it was intimidating. Uh, I went to this church, Albany Bible Church, as I just mentioned, and the pastor's kind of MO was, the Bible is what you need as a Christian to understand and to live by, and I'm not here to entertain you. And he used big words. He used words like dispensation, um, sovereignty, uh, hypostatic union, and he wasn't afraid to use it. And uh, so it was intimidating going, but at the same time, I saw the people there and how loving they were and how they lived it out. So it encouraged me to seek after, you know, what does this mean? I'd go to school and my teachers would expect me to learn the material there and it was no different at church. My pastor expected us to learn and to seek after that um, and he didn't water it down. So he also instilled a love for God's word in me because he every week would emphasize that as a believer in Jesus Christ, the word of God is how God has chosen to reveal himself. And so it is important that you know it. You need to order your life around knowing God's word. So if that means you've got to put off something so you can be at church and learning under a pastor teacher, you need to do that. Um, if you need to go to bed earlier so you can get up earlier and study God's word and pray and just spend time in that relationship with him, do it because that's the most important thing in your life now is a new believer. Two Bible verses come to mind, 2 Timothy 2.15. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that was central with my, uh, with, with my mentors. But also in John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then a couple verses later in John 14, 21, he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So, I saw this in practice as I learned his word and then as I kept those commandments, it's almost like he, with any other relationship, he revealed himself more. Um, I felt more of a peace that I haven't felt before, kind of that, uh, you know, that Christ-like peace that John Anderson had where he could strike out and still smile, where I would strike out and there wasn't much smiling going on. We got to get our priorities straight. Um, that was instilled in me from the beginning of my Christian walk and it is still instilled in me throughout today um, with mentors like Don and Hartog that helped me to remember both God's word and people are the only thing that's gonna be eternal. Um, so you need to have your priorities straight. So many times I hear people um, not wanting to come to church because you know they have a sniffle or their back aches in the morning or there's kids games and they don't want to get in God's word because they didn't go to bed in enough time and and it, you know it's 
it's a lifetime of, of growing and progressing and, and not trying to be legalistic, but there is a part where we do have to have our priorities straight. God's word has to be central in our life to know it. And then also following up, live it. Um, the verses I just mentioned before, if you keep my commandments, you will be loving me. And so it's two parts, knowing God's word and then keeping what you know and asking him to help us to walk that life because we're coming out of a life of darkness where it's all about us. And now we're going into a life where we're glorifying the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that takes a transformation of our mind. So I encourage you to, to put God's word as a priority in your life and also um, keeping his commandments, make that a priority as well.